This year has been the most money I've ever made in my life on W-2. It's 47000 But you got to realize I'm a janitor, so our society doesn't really value that skill set. I feel that if I can demonstrate what I've done on my small lifetime income, anybody can do it. Surely it is easier if you're married and you have a spouse on board and if you're dual income and you're making a hundred grand or two fifty, a lot of these individuals will come on and say, Oh yeah, my wife and I we make two fifty, three hundred, or we make five, or we got rental income of thirty thousand a year. I'm like, that's that's not a big deal. I mean to me. Try to do it when you're just above minimum wage. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is Clark here alongside my co-host, Jace. Jace, what's going on? This is going to be episode 191. Yeah, man. Just rolling into summer. What's going on with you? Not a whole lot. We're talking about traveling. You got any fun trips coming up? You know, I just got back from a trip. I went to Mexico and Colorado. So, I don't have a whole lot going on. I'm going to be going out to the lake for, for a long weekend here. And that's about it. Don't have anything else kind of pop up. May have some store of stuff towards the end of the summer, but it's all I've got on the calendar right now. What about you? Nothing too much. We have all the family reunion at the end of July. Uh, uh, sister-in-law is getting married. I would just look the other day at the TSA travel numbers. I was curious to look it up. So June 15th, the last three years. So 2019, 2.5 million. June 15th this year, 1.7 million. So 2.5 to 1.7 in 2020, it was about 400,000. So it's four times what it was last year, but it's it's still about 70, only 75% of, of what it was in 2019, but certainly picking up here. Yeah, definitely. It makes, a, makes for an interesting summer. I think more things are opening up. Obviously, more people getting vaccinated. Brings the question, you know, we've got a lot of the millionaires on, on that have discussed using credit card points for travel or travel hacking or you know, using different methods to, you know, create these experiences and travel for less than maybe you would normally would. Is there anything that, that you do in particular, Clark, for, for cheap travel or have any suggestions uh, for our listeners that have helped you travel on a, on a budget? Yeah, we were talking about this a little bit beforehand. I haven't done that. I mean, pl- in terms of playing with some of the credit card points and stuff, my credit card is just, I do Fidelity. So it's an unlimited 2% cashback card, but I haven't, I haven't like booked with three miles. I know people get airline cards or save up points. I haven't done that so much. Um, I'm sure people are familiar with it, but occasionally I use skip lag, which is like a, a flight that skips one of the cities. So I've used that before, but that's not, I guess, what people think of too much when we say travel hacking. But I haven't. Part of me is like wonders if you spend so much time on it. I guess I'd rather spend the time somewhere else. But what, what about you? You know, I do have an airline's credit card. We fly American a lot, being in Texas, so I do have that, which is nice. Comes with the bags, and we have booked a few tickets over the years with some of those points. But it's not something that I—I have a lot of points. I do need to use some of them, but it's not something that I particularly try to utilize or focus on that much in terms of traveling. I just try to look at—you know—I got two kids, so I mainly am looking for direct flights, and you know, the hotel is pretty important where we stay and kind of what 
the accommodations look like for us. So we do look into that, but I'm not as concerned about points. We do stay at Airbnbs too. Just kind of depends on where we're going and for how long and whatnot. But not, I know a lot of people are friends. You've got a hack, right? (laughs) Yeah, I know. We do have a lot of friends that, that, that utilize it and have done well with it. I know I've had several friends that taking cross continental trips and stuff with points and i've looked into it a few times but it, it's not as easy as sometimes people make it out to be you know they've got dates and dates restrictions and all sorts of stuff that make it difficult sometimes yeah, to yeah. use those points i mean it's nice when you get mile points like on delta or american or something because you build them up and you can buy a flight but yeah sometimes they're not at the best times but you can i don't know if you search i guess far enough in advance you can find something that works so, anyway, yeah, we don't talk about that too much, but I wonder how many of our millionaires are using our hacking. We'll have to start apps. asking so them. I guess it's probably, yeah, we should. So, this week, we have a, a super fun interview with Jeff. Jeff is the wealthy custodian. He's a repeat episode from episode 47. A lot of people have been writing in wanting to hear about his update. A lot of It's probably the most commented episodes, one of the most downloaded episodes on our show, episode 47, when Jeff first came on. This was in September of 2018. So we thought we'd bring him on again and, and kind of have a follow-up discussion with him, keep him on a little longer and talk through s- some more interesting things and hear about his progress. So again, this is Jeff, the wealthy custodian from episode 47 initially. Last week, we had Amy and Brian, married couple. Fun to have them on, hear their perspective. They're not yet millionaires, but are well soon to be. They're well on their way and, and fun to hear about what they're doing now to, to reach that that goal. Anybody who's engaged online, thanks so much. If you have questions for our millionaires, there are a few written in this week. So if you have questions for millionaires, just go ahead and comment right on the on their page. You can go to our website, millionairesunveiled.com, and comment directly relating to that interview. And, and hopefully our millionaires will engage. We'll let them know that that's up there. And, and you can ask any questions that we have or, or share any anything else you'd like to talk about. You can also ask a question to our millionaire online. You speak pipe. We have. You can ask a millionaire or write it in. We'll ask the, the question on the show. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to the podcast week after week. If you enjoyed the show, we always we always love when people go in and review it. So thanks again for tuning in. And without any further delay, let's get into episode 191 with Jeff, the wealthy custodian. Jeff, do you want to just give a little background to, to some of our listeners that may have not have heard your first episode and, and who you are and, and what you're doing now? Yeah, um, I'm now 55, believe it or not, and I live in Northern California, and I've been working in the school district, Pacheco, for about, oh my gosh, 33 years, the end of this September, and went to our junior college here in the area and thought I would go on to higher education, but I don't know, probably about four or five years through it, I found that that wasn't really my skill set, and I came upon a personal finance class called Investments 44, and that was back in 96, and that really changed my life, and money had always been in my family. My dad is older. He's from the Depression, so money was always talked about in my family, I know, and most of Americans kind of a taboo, but it was talked pretty openly, and he had some pretty old-fashioned ideas that uh, I kind of adopted, and so I took that investment class, started understanding how money worked outside of just owning a bank account or certificates of deposit. And then the next class I took was a personal finance class, and that really opened up my world even larger and explained how money worked and how the capital markets worked. And I was already a natural saver, and 
I didn't start investing till, oh my gosh, end of 2002 when during one of the courses at Shasta College, I discovered my school district offered a 403B. And at that time, that was be like 97, 98. I was still tied into, you know, you invest in certificates of deposits. And unfortunately, I was sold a couple annuities and I actually bought one on my own. And then I came across a book put out by 403BYs back in 2001, read that book and Millionaire Next Door, and just started really enriching my life with uh, financial education. And then I was able to get Vanguard on my list at my school district in the end of 2002, opened my first 403B7, started out with a total stock market fund, started transferring the money from the old annuity companies that I had and started putting it in the market. And for those that are older, you might remember that's when we were coming out of the dot-com, 2003, 2004. We were starting to really build up speed. And um, that's where the wealth started taking off. And um, I actually have some data all the way back to 2003. It shows what my net worth was, how over time it's been building. That's awesome. So just for our listeners, Jeff's original episode with us was on episode 47. I think at the time your net worth was was 1.4-ish. So what is it today? And then maybe tell our listeners what it started back to that that 2002-2003 timeframe when you you have the data available. Yeah. uh, Back then on my first episode, I was married with my second wife. And our combined wealth at the time was about 1.4 million. Unfortunately, that relationship ended towards the end of 2018. But the bright spot in that whole situation, and also with my first wife, is is when most people go through separations with their spouses, it generally impoverishes one or both entities and their net worth. But I'm of a kind of a different mindset than when I got married to both of them. It wasn't my intention ever to increase lifestyle. And most of the times in our country, when people get married, they get a larger house, more vehicles, more lavish lifestyle. And with both of those individuals, and also with my last one, I took the dual income from each one of us, especially on the last one, and um, used it to build wealth for her. So when we left, she actually left with about $175,000 more than when she came in with the deal. And you're saying, how can in three years, can you save up that much, Jeff? At the time, I don't think she'd be too upset now. She uh, was almost a six-figure income for the state of California in a management position. And what we did was is we um, started uh, loading up on the 401k that the state offers and a 457 plan. And at the end of our relationship, I think she was putting close to uh, almost $60,000 a year of her income. Because I'll remember one time she said to me, she goes, you make me look poor. I said, only on paper, but I said, you're very rich. So that was very gratifying to know that, you know, even though the marriage ended, I knew that I had had a positive impact on her life and get, getting her money all together and got her an advisor at Vanguard. And I always told her if anything ever happened, to always stick with the advisor at Vanguard. So it was gratifying in that respect. I know that's kind of a weird way of looking at a separation of a relationship, but it's kind of like my legacy. So, so what is your net worth today now? Um, I think I'm, last time I checked last night, I'm about 970000 So you've essentially become a millionaire again. Is that correct? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, real couple close. times over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With my first wife back in the early two thousands, with her house and what we did, and got her going, and she was a school teacher and everything. She was almost a millionaire at that time. But at that time, back in two thousand three, my net worth was only one hundred thirty six thousand dollars. And remember, it was at that time I was educating myself, and almost all the money was in either money market accounts or certificates of deposit. Because remember in the early 2000s, you could still get them for like 5 or 6%. So I used to chase certificates of deposits around. So at that time, I was at 136000 And that was at the end of May of 2003. And then what and about in 2010? I don't have any data for 2010. I do have data for... Yeah, 2010 is when her and I separated my first one and I went to go buy a house. We could do a whole podcast on my short sale house. Um, in 2006, at the end of 2006, my net worth was 245000 And at that time, it was uh, about 107000 was in the equity markets. And I had a 457, a CalPERS 457. I was doing Roth IRAs back then and then my 403B7 through Vanguard. And at that time, the total was 107. So, so if you were, if you were, let's call it 250 in 2006, right? You're a million right. now. It's 2020. That's 14 years, about 700,000. So you were saving about $50,000 a year. No, no, I wasn't. You remember my income not saving, is but it was in. It was also, I guess, building. Right, your net worth was right, fifty thousand yeah. a year. Yeah, my this year has been the most money I've ever made in my life on W two. It's forty seven thousand. Believe it or not, as the coronavirus was hitting, I got a two percent raise. And what they do is they retro those back, so I got like sixteen, seventeen hundred. Up until the coronavirus hit, I was getting overtime. And everything. So this year I project I'll be about 47,000 on W2 income, but my normal rate of pay would be about 44,500, a little over 45. And I'm, I'm at about $21 an hour. And you own, do you own your home? Remind me. Yeah. In 2010, when my first wife and I split, we had a prenuptial agreement. I have this strange philosophy my dad taught me. Let me see if I can remember it correctly because I'll refer to him. Business is business between friends, family, lovers, wives. And my dad said, if you treat it that way, you'll always be able to keep them around. So I think if you were to talk to my two ex-wives, they probably wouldn't say too many bad things about me on the financial stuff that, you know, so, <laughs> so in, two, so there, in yeah. 2000, yeah. So in 2010, what happened then I might have mentioned it in the first one was, Remember, that was the uh, economy was blowing up. You know, we're giving credits to incentivize people to buy houses. I'm living back with my dad. He says, son, this is time for you to go buy a house. I go, dad, the world's falling apart. He says, this is the best time to go buy one. So in 2010, I bought a short sale house for 170 And what was blowing my mind was, is I was doing it on a $32,000 year income, about five and a half times my annual income with no wow. government assistance. And how and did the, you, what did, did you, you didn't pay cash, right? Or did you, how did you? No, well, what I did was, and some of it's smart, some's not, depending on what philosophy. At that time when I was with my first wife, I had really bought into the Roth idea. We could do a whole podcast on why I'm not real hot, hot on Roths. But at that time I had saved up about $31,000 in a Roth account 
that unfortunately was invested overseas that had dropped to about twenty four, twenty five thousand. So I cashed that out to get my twenty percent down payment. Plus, I had cash at the time. So when I walked okay. into this house, it took about thirty nine thousand dollars to get into it because okay. you know realist, yeah. And do you still own anything on it now? Yeah, what I did was is in um, I got a one thirty loan for four point five, and I I just thought I died and got to heaven because I'm old enough to remember right. people a little bit older where there were nine and ten and twelve, mm-hmm. and I remember I was really stressed out buying the house because it had a pit bull living in it, it had trees living on top of it, but it was in a great neighborhood. You know, it's in a good neighborhood for where I live. And I was stressing one night, and my dad goes, you're never going to lose that house. I go, what do you mean? He goes, hell, you can rent it out for more than what you're paying on taxes and insurance. You're not going <laughs> to lose the house. And my dad's like 80 years old, never made it past eighth grade, but he has really good street smarts. So even at 80 plus then, when he was still alive, he goes, you're not going to lose the house. Don't stress. He goes, they don't want that house back. They don't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> they don't want yeah. to take that house back in foreclosure. And it was very close to going into foreclosure when I showed up. I was the only offer in two years on it. So, so how much do you, how much do you still owe on it? In 2012, I refinanced it to a 20 year loan at 3.5 and my payment went from 658 up to 718. I know that's counter. I'm supposed to have a long mortgage and take the difference and invest it. I, I understand that. That's one philosophy, but I'm of the old school. And then in 2016 in April, when remember Brexit hit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I had self-educated myself enough, plus taking classes and watching stuff that the 10-year treasury is tied to the mortgage rates. So when the 10-year goes down, mortgage rates generally go down. And I was able to get a online mortgage at third federal savings alone they're kind of like the christmas story i don't know if you guys are old enough who was that actor in there where they had the bank the savings and loan bank and it was going bust and everything the christmas story anyways third federal is a savings alone back in cincinnati and i got a 2.39 within 10 years so at this moment i have about a little less than a little more than five years left on it and i'm about fifty thousand left on it so do you ever think about taking some of this million bucks and just paying it off or are you happy to do it over the next five or so years? Yeah, I'm happy to do that because um, something else to interject, this December I'll be leaving work forever, my custodial job. Oh, wow. You're retiring. Well, not retiring. I really don't like that word. When I used to give free, uh, workshops and facilitate them, I looked up the word retirement and it means retract to remove and it's kind of from the 19th mm-hmm. century yeah. and to me everybody goes oh you're retiring i go no it's 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 like graduating from high school if you go to college or something because you have such these elongated lifespans depending on how you take care of yourself and for me it's just a transition i'd be what almost 56 and i had done some really interesting strategies to pop up my pension to get it to almost about 85%. Everybody goes, oh, 85%, that's really good. And I said, but remember, that's a $21 an hour pay rate. That's not like I'm making 70 or 80 or 110. I'm not a highly compensated state employee. So, but you got to realize I'm a janitor. So our society doesn't really value that skill set. Right now, they sure value it at my school sites, right? Yeah, it's true. (laughs) But so, yeah, that's where I'm moving into seven. I'm not going to pay it off. 
Yeah. Wow, wow. So let's just run through your allocation briefly. I know we probably did an episode 47. That was in 2000, September of 2018 or so that, that was released. But just big bucket accounts here. H- how much of it is, I guess let's start with the, the money that's in the stock market. How much is in retirement versus non-retirement accounts? I guess I'm specifying like 401k. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In the school industry, since we're considered nonprofit like a hospital or a 5013c, we have what they call a 403b7. And all the seven means is paragraph seven in the IRS code that was added in 1974 to allow mutual funds. Because up until that time, 403Bs were actually started in 1958. The only product that you could have in it is annuities. So, so anyways, back to that. I have about 480, maybe a little less today in my brokerage account. I think I got about 16,000 in that. And I have an HSA that I just did a $2,250 transfer in because I'm now contributing back to my HSA. So I think that's got about 36 in it right now. The house has got about $240,000 worth of equity, depending on what you think the value is. And my pension is about 215000 So once I go into retirement, my wealth will drop back because it's not really fair to keep that $215,000 pension as an asset on the books. I'll take that off. And most of the, and most of my equities are overseas about 50%. And my style of investing is value investing because that fits my overall economy of how I run life. Whatever I I, I try to see value in from my value system. My Corolla, I see value in it, or my Honda, or even my house. And even my two spouses, my ex-spouses, they have great values. I still really admire about them, or I would have never married them. But when when you say fifty percent of it or so is overseas, what do you mean by that? That's just international index funds. Yeah, that is correct. It's it's a broad basket. If I can get my little iPad to come up here, and I actually tried to do a a screenshot of how it's all broken down, because Vanguard has this great little tool, portfolio tool, and you can go in there and you can add like your house and everything. So out of that. Four hundred, almost five hundred thousand dollars. If you had the HSA, over half of that it's overseas. It's got emerging markets, small cap, ex world US, you know, developed market, all the low cost index stuff in there. And then I did get involved in healthcare because unfortunately our country as a whole is not really taking the care of themselves, and it's aging. So healthcare is going to continue to be utilized a great deal. So I have yeah. a healthcare fund in there. Yeah. And hey, it's all, it's all basically index funds. Okay. And it has, hey, J- it has the two, it has REITs. And REITs. Okay. Gotcha. So let me just go back to your pension. You said you value it at about 215,000. What, what, how's that set up? You get a certain amount every year once you not retire because you don't like that word, but once you stop working in December here? Yeah. Basically what I did is I did some interesting strategies. Um, most pensions are based on a formula. It's your year to service times an age benefit factor or percentage multiplied against your either your highest 30 months, your average 12. And remember back in 1998, 99, 2000, stock markets roared and the dot-com was going through the roof. Well, out here in California, the pensions were overfunded. So what they did is they enhanced those pensions. And some people think, say, today they're paying the price. In that case, 
an option in 2004 where I could buy five more years of server credit, even though I hadn't actually performed. It'd be in the investment world like buying an annuity because that's what a pension is, an annuity. It's been put out by the state and not a private insurance company. So I bought five years of service credit. So I have 33 years in of service. They call it the other five airtime. I'm one of those individuals. I haven't taken a day off probably in one, 32 years. So I have roughly about 2,806 hours. And I know out in the private world, they don't allow you to accumulate. They call it paid time off or paid time leave off, where they add your sick leave and your vacation together. And when you reach a certain level, they force you to save to take it. Because if you save it, then you become a liability to them if you need to use it all at once. And with the state, you're allowed to uh, convert that sick leave with service credit. In my case, that equals about another year, almost another year and a half of service credit. So I'll leave the district with about 40 years of service. It's like the equivalent that I started working for my district when I was 14 years old. Wow. You learn as you talk to me that I'm always ahead of time. I'm always, even when I was struggling through Shasta College and had to do term papers and they were three or four months out, I'd start working on them ahead of time. Because for me, I can't whip them out in a couple of days. So whatever I do in life, I, that's a strategy I do. I'm always ahead. Overfund the pension, overfund the 403b7, always overfund so you have resiliency in your life and in your finances. So whatever things happen. So what do you think your pension will be annually? And, you, and will you get that until you pass away? Yeah, if you probably did an actuarial calculation on my pension, my pension's probably worth about 1.2, 1.3 million. If you did the traditional, how much does Jeff have to save up to generate $38,000 with cost of living adjustments and purchasing power protection that you don't get in the 401k world, it will, I would probably have to save about 1.2, 1.3 million to generate that over my lifetime. Yeah. So it's almost not fair to say that your net worth is, is a million. Right, because you're really not going to have to withdraw any of that in retirement to live the life you're living. Right, I already calculated that. Once all the statutory costs go away, and your listeners are saying, "What is he talking about?" Well, I list them off. I'm not going to be paying in this PERS anymore. There's seven percent not leaving my paycheck every year or every month. Not paying in the Medicare anymore. There's one point four five. Not paying into Social Security. There's six point two zero. Not paying union dues. Not paying local dues, <laughs> you know. I'm not paying. Right. I'll go. I'll go on the Affordable Care Act out here in California. Even on the high deductible out my district, they're still carving 150, 200 dollars a month. I know everybody's going to laugh at me, but when you're at twenty dollars an hour and you're a single guy and you're paying the full freight of life, 150, 200 bucks a month is a big deal. <laughs> How much do you spend a year? Oh, that all depends. Um, I think my base monthly base, that's like food, transportation, everything, the house, you name it, is about $1,800, $1,850 a month. So let's, let's call it 2000 just for easy math. So 24. So maybe it's about 20000 right? With 1850 Yeah. And, quick and math. Yeah. And I, I should have probably never put any money in a 403B7, but I did a weird technique that most people do, even at my low income and low tax rate, I would take whatever the savings was on that contribution in the 403b7, and I would throw that in as well. Most people don't do that. At all. Hmm. I would, I would but recycle. If you, spend, 
if you spend just twenty two thousand a year, right? Your pension, mm-hmm. how much did you say? Like thirty? It's going to be thirty one. It's going to be thirty one hundred a month. Okay, so thirty six grand a year. So you spend twenty two thousand a year. Your pension's going to be thirty six a year. But then uh-huh. you're also going to have the house paid off for in five years. So that's another, if we're calling and that's it. Eight, that's $809. already did the math. It'll reduce my housing expense by 19% of my after-tax dollars. Yeah. So, and that's about 10000 a year. So you're going to be living off, even if you up your spending, let's call it 15000 a year, you're going to be bringing in over thirty a year from this pension. I mean, you're going to be growing your net worth even after this pension comes, right? Exactly. And also, too, uh, this year I transitioned back up to a high deductible. I was on the, uh, oh, which plan was that? Oh, not the high deductible, too, but I was on the bronze plan. And that bronze plan that we had at my district offered wasn't HSA compatible. But this year I only have four months of actual time I'm going to be in my district. You know, I got October, November, December. Then I have 25 days of vacation will carry me all through December and all through January. So my first day of, quote, retirement will be February 1st. And what I've done is, is I've now moved up to the high deductible. So when you're age 55 and older, you can do a $1,000 catch-up. And with an HSA that I learned, because I've been in one since 2004, that if you have credible coverage by December of the calendar year or tax year that you're in, like, this would be December 2020, but I didn't have it in January. I can go back and fund all that, if that makes sense. So I'm doing that this year. I want to fund my HSA fully. Interesting. Jeff, earlier you mentioned that you aren't in favor of Roths, and we could do a whole episode on that. <laughs> yeah, just, we could. Just for our listeners, give maybe a brief explanation of why you are not and, and, and maybe you know why you would talk uh, you to know, others. <laughs> You know, anytime you're dealing with the government, they change the rules all the time. It was just like long time ago, Social Security was never taxed. Don't you think it's ironic that they take after-tax dollars out of my paycheck that goes to the Treasury Department that goes out to pay my mom? That's how the system really works. It's the pay-as-you-go. That Clinton, a Democrat, and I think it was Reagan, somebody can fact-check me, changed it where it could be taxed. If you're a certain income and I'll be taxed on it, I don't believe the government is going to let everybody do these tax arbitrage. Well, I'm in a low rate now and do all these conversions and pay the tax now. I mean, if you just take the savings on a regular 401k, you know, like you put a thousand dollars in it, it saves you 300 bucks in taxes. You just throw the $300 back in. You're basically doing the same thing. And most people really have to save a lot of money to be in a higher tax bracket. If you have a pension, that can be done. Even some of my high-income friends, they didn't put enough away to equal whatever their human capital lifetime income is. So, you know, most people would have said, oh, Jeff, you should have done the Roth. The tax wasn't that big. The savings was that big a deal. Well, I'm weird and different. I took the tax savings and threw it in it. And if you believe the government in 20 years or 30 years is going to honor it or nibble around the edges, just like we used to have the stretch IRA. All those kinds of things, and go for it. You know, it's 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 a choice. It's a risk. So I'm I'm not a real big fan of them. Interesting. But that's kind of I, that's my cynical way of looking at it. Yeah. So as you move on from from your career as a custodian here, what are you doing about insurance going forward? Um, I've already have an appointment to go on the Affordable Care Act. 
since I am such a low income person, I'll get the full subsidy. So I think on the HSA bronze plan, I think my out of pocket, not out of pocket, but my monthly premiums, like a dollar, two dollars a month. Because my goal is, is to stay on the HSA all the way to age 65 and continue to fully fund the HSA. Because the HSA is the only tax favored plan that's not attached to your employment. Every one of our plans is attached to your employment. You don't work in Pacheco. Don't put any more money in 403b7. Got to go to a traditional brokerage account. So the HSA is the only thing that I know that you can keep funding once you work, quit work because it's tied to your health coverage, not your employer. That's a whole nother podcast I could get on top about how all these plans are all tied to your employer. So that's my goal is to stay on an HSA all the way through age 65 and continue fully funding for the Interesting. future. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you're looking forward to as you move into this next phase of your life? Having 150% control of my time to do what I'm doing here right now with you, gentlemen. This is, for me, this is full self-actualization for me because I feel that if I can demonstrate what I've done on my small lifetime income, anybody can do it. Surely it is easier if you're married and you have a spouse on board and if you're dual income and you're making a hundred grand or 250, a lot of these individuals will come on and say, oh yeah, my wife and I, we make 250, 300 or we make five or we got rental income of 30,000 a year. I'm like, that's that's not a big deal. I mean, to me, try to do it when you're just above minimum wage, and you got to right. really watch what's going on. And I and not take anything against those individuals and their success stories. I have a friend; he's worth over two million. He would be considered a high income millionaire. Technically, I told him one time, I go, "You should have about five or six, but you spend it too much on houses <laughs> and your son." He didn't like that because he always thought, as the bigger the house, the more wealthy would grow. And he finally realized in his later life, when he got to 4,400 square feet, less people can buy that as opposed to my little 1,400 square foot track house. But Jeff, that's what you're at. I mean, you're at, you're at 2 million if you account for this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of, you're really being generous. You're very, no, I don't think you're being, you're being really generous because that, because you know, the the $215,000 will actually all be burned up in about 12 years. And then the rest is all on CalPERS to go out and invest that. But well, I the did pension get, is the pension's capped at two fifteen. Yeah, I will no longer put any more money in that. So when I start to draw my thirty one hundred dollars out, they'll start pulling a small amount out of my portion. And then okay. within about twelve years, it'll be gone. It'll be exhausted because somebody gotcha. years ago asked me to go. What happens when all of my money's gone? I said it's not like a four hundred one k. You're not taking all the risk. See. I tried to use both sides of two very distinct ideologies in our country. Pension is a collectivist, kind of an Asian point of view, where everybody pays in and CalPERS and employers take your money and their money and they go out into the capital markets and invest it. Right now, someone's not calling me. I'm saying, you know, Jeff, 3,100, it's only 21 now. Coronavirus took it down a couple of notches. So, and then you, and then you have the other side of the coin. You have the 401ks and, all the DC plans, those are all individualists. I'm the one that had to go in there and add more money every month, or I got a pay raise. I had to do it. I had steady work. And most people just aren't inherently disciplined to do that, or they make choices not to allow them to do that. So I try to use both sides. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. 
I mean, let, let's talk about discipline because I, I think that's really what a big chunk of your story has been about, right? You mentioned earlier that this year you'll make 47000 which is the most you've ever made. Yeah. You have a net worth of a million, more than that, right? If you in- include this pension. Mm-hmm. How did you do it all? And I know we hit on this in episode 47, but for those who haven't listened and it's inspiring to us, how were you able to get there? Because it's just an amazing, amazing story on the level of well, income you made and living in a high cost state. Yeah, but you, have, but you have to realize I live in Northern California. I live in Redding. I'm not in Sacramento. I'm not in San Jose. I'm not in San Diego. So I'm in the rural end of the Northern Valley up here. And you have to realize the way I did it is, is as my life emerged, I lived in someone's backyard for 14 years at $365 a month. I'll never forget my father as I finally closed on this short sale house. Ooh, we could do a whole podcast on that. He goes, congratulations, son. I go, yeah, this is great. I get six different keys to my house because it's so messed up. It has holes in it and a tree living on it. I got to get it off. He goes, they got your, they got their hooks into you, son. I go, what do you mean, Dad? What do you mean they got their hooks into me? He goes, oh, you get to pay property taxes in the water, in the sewer, in the trash, and you get to do all the maintenance and the upkeep on it. <laughs> and he goes, you get to pay the property taxes and the homeowner's insurance and anything else they want to throw at you. Oh, and he says the school bonds. Don't forget those. I just got my property taxes. Shows all that. So, you know. And, but it's given me a nice lifestyle. I have a backyard I have. I grow fresh vegetables in and I have fresh fruit from about oh, June from my cherry tree all the way around to my citrus in the winter times. It's, it, I, I, I enjoy it and I'm a handy person so I can take on most anything. Did you ever get discouraged on your journey at all? Did you feel like it wasn't moving fast enough? Did you feel like you didn't have enough? Did you feel like you didn't have enough to do what you wanted to do? Because I, I know you're a pretty simple guy. Did you ever get discouraged on your journey? You know, no, not. I don't know if I ever got discouraged. One podcast person or a book I read, he says, be self-referral. Don't be object referral. I'll never forget my second wife was on that lovely Facebook and she showed us a couple's house and was in what they call the Bel Air Estates. Surprise, surprise by the name. And it's like 3,000 square feet, the hot tub, the pool. And I said to her, I said, do you know how much energy he has to go through that husband, keep that whole place going in his business? I said, he doesn't have this much time with his wife like I do with you. I think for some people, they think it's good to be gone a lot, making money, and then you can raise your lifestyle. For me, I value time because you can never get it back. I think Rod Stewart, I'm just listening to some of my old CDs. I just got an old 1997 CD player that I hooked into my stereo in the car. That's a whole nother story. Talks about sand goes through your hands. You know, time is a thief, you know, time is brief or something like that in one of his songs. And it's true. You know, I think it's good to have good things and nice things, but don't let them own you. You own them. But everybody's got different value systems. Yeah. Did you actively make that choice as you chose to be a custodian and take that career route? Or was that something that, you developed over time as you saw that as no, you started I, to realize and understand those things. You know, actually the custodial thing was from my stepmom. That goes all the way back to like 1986. And I have a natural 
propensity to clean things because that was one thing about my dad. We didn't come from a very high social economic family. And it's kind of ironic. I called my dad out of it years later. I go, did you think it was interesting or funny that we had a cabin cruiser boat that was twice as much in worth as the mobile home we lived in? He goes, I like boats. That's how we made it to Reading because we were always on Shasta Lake. My dad didn't work. He ran his life so efficiently with the money and what he got from certain deals he was doing. He never worked. He used to say working's for chumps. I know that's sacrilege in our country because we're all conditioned to work, and I think we should work, but I don't think we should work to shorten our lives or, as I call it, um, economic slavery, you know, with a lot of people. So to me, back, mm-hmm. to, custo- back to custodial, I just started out as to get some, some money and then I had the dream. I was all in this whole mindset. You got to go to college. If you don't go to college, you're worth the, you know, blankety blank and you're not going to be successful and you have to have the five year degree and then the PhD and the masters do all this. And I wish somebody would have pulled me aside in my early twenties, especially my dad said, dude, <laughs> there are other ways to make money than wealth besides attending college. I think that's a great career track. I have a high income friend, medical profession. He can go through any college class. He can memorize it. He can put it out. But when it comes to financial literacy, he's not real high up on it. <laughs> you know, so he's been a good mm-hmm. income generator. But back to being custodial, I kind of realized, I said, you know, I got to take what I do and educate myself about financial literacy. And when I did that, we all started growing. But, you know, I've given up a lot. I've never had kids. Um, I've never owned a new car. I've only had five. Two of them have been wrecked. One was given to me. I think the most expensive car in my Corolla was $3,300 back in 06. Um, I don't feel like I'm lacking. I feel like I'm richer. I sleep eight hours at night. <laughs> I'm underweight. <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, I do yoga. <laughs> I exercise. I try to help people <laughs> by doing this. Yeah. Yeah. This good, isn't for a, good for you. Yeah. Yeah, so and I, I yeah, provide and a good service for the kids yeah, at the school. Yeah. What are your hours normally? Um, right now I work a five to one thirty shift. Five a.m. to one thirty. Wow. Yeah, and I'm a natural morning person, anyways. If you notice, sure. a lot of your millionaires exercise. They get up early. There's certain characteristics that are endemic to this. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's obviously commendable. And just for our listeners, this, this initial episode, episode 47 has been one of our most listened and appreciated episodes of all. Right. I think because of your amazing story and because of the drive and the ability to, to save, right. And, and continue saving and to persevere and to reach a net worth of over a million dollars on income of less than 50, 50,000. It's amazing. So just wrapping up here, Jeff, I mean, like I just said, I, I think it's amazing wh- what you've done. And, and you're a, we know you're a pretty simple guy, right? No computer, no cell phone. Talking to us mm. on an iPad you bought on Craigslist. Yeah, and then I got my second one over here. I got an estate sale. My second wife and I were big into eBay. She was a great eBayer. Oh, my gosh, she was so <laughs> good. She was so good at it. She was excellent. At buying or selling or both? Both. She came from your neck of the woods. She came from Long Island. And, okay. Um, she had that entrepreneurial spirit. Her background is Jewish and her dad uh, used to sell leathers in the city. And she lived in Long Island and she, she could sit there at a yard sale and dicker and have money hanging out. And she'd go, Oh, this ad's not selling right. I'm going to change the words. And I swear within an hour or two, there'd be a ding on the phone. 
I'm like, I cannot believe this. What she could wow. do. She was such a good e-bear. I wish she should have, she would have still done that. But, but, but to me, I don't think it's really that remarkable. I just think it's just inherently in me. It's just, I just, I'm very efficient. I don't, I dry my clothes on a line. People laugh at me. <laughs> you know? <laughs> So Jeff, yeah. l- let me just ask you. So I, I think, and I think I asked you this in the in the first episode we did with you too. But one of the things that's so prevalent in our society today is comparing against each other, right? Whether it's because of social media, whether it's because of negative news, whether it's just that's how we inherently are, right? We want the approval, we want people to like us, we we value feedback that people give. The, the material things don't at all seem to worry you. The thought of Hey, you don't make that much, or you're a custodian. It doesn't seem to bother you. Why is it, and how did you get over that? Because it's not it's not attached to my my identity. My identity is is centered in me. I'll give you an example. Two weeks ago, I lived by a creek, Clear Creek here, or Churn Creek. I'm always saying somebody's going to throw a match in that thing. We have big gray pines that get up in this tops of those gray pines and crowns. My neighborhood will get cooked just like that. The, the car, the car fire did here two years ago, three o'clock in the morning, north winds blowing. It's 70 degrees. The humidity's down around zero. I pick up the phone, evacuate. I grab my stash of cash. I grab my two iPads. I grab my personal documents. I throw some stuff in a bag, call a friend. I got to evacuate. I take my Honda because it's nicer of the two. I'm out of there in 20 minutes. Who cares? There's nothing in here. Nothing in this house. This whole house is built on Craigslist, thrift stores, yard sales. But it's a very nice house. If someone came over and says, Wow, I think my second wife called it the grandma house because I like maple furniture. It's very good quality. It's from the 60s. Yeah, my house would be gone, but I still have myself. And, and, and I don't attach myself or my identity, whatever social hierarchical structure that we have. You know, am I opening a kid's milk or am I helping mop up something at the school? Or maybe somebody out there will listen to this podcast and say, wow, Jeff out ready to do it. I'm going to get on the stick, you know? So, you know, I don't attach myself to that. The downside is, is I really don't have a really a tribe of people to be with because a lot of things I do, people don't really want to do, <laughs> you know? So that would be the downside. My dad always said, do you want to be the ram or do you want to be the sheep? I said, I want to be the Ram. He says, then follow yourself. Don't follow everyone else. I'll give you an example. Coronavirus is kicking up last March, 15, 16, 15 or 16th of March. Everybody, all of a sudden, people at the district say, we want your time card. You know what the first thing pops in my mind? Time to go investing. Is that crazy? That's the first thing right. I said. Uh-oh, this is the market's going to dive. And that's what it did. And I transferred about $75,000 out of my fixed income inside my 437. And what and bought everything that was down and, and followed it down. Up. Yeah, so I'm hoping the coronavirus will eventually push me over the million dollars. Well, awesome, Jeff. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing your story again. You know, this one will be listened to by a lot more. So I think you'll influence a lot of people, as you mentioned. Yeah, and you certainly have to us. So I appreciate yeah, the friendship any- we've made, and yeah, and thank I you did. for taking the time. Yeah. Just in closing, I guess, any last words of advice, any mistake you made that you wish you would have done differently or, or what's kind well, of your final? If you were gonna if you're if you're gonna mark me down, I would mark me down by not increasing my income. Because your biggest wealth building generating machine is your income. 
And then what you do is you take that income and buy assets and those assets become stores of wealth. And then eventually your assets start generating income. So you don't have to go out and trade your time for it. So I would mark me down on that part, but I, I tried to look at what my strengths are and, you know, working more hours and, tra- and traveling and traffic is too painful for me. I'd rather be slow and steady where they say Aesop's fable, the tortoise and the hare. Well, I'm the tortoise. Yeah, but you Anyways, won. You won. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. And yeah. I'm fine. I, gonna be I really appreciate you providing this platform for everyone. No, to it's to. fun. It's fun. And we appreciate you coming on. So thanks again, everybody. That's Jeff custodian net worth of about a million bucks. A little more than that, right? If we count your pension. Thanks again for coming on tonight. Really appreciate it. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.